Kia ora, everyone. Uh, this is Branko Marcetic uh, for another episode of 1200. I'm here with my sole co-host this week, Carl Church. Carl, how are you going? I am fantastic. Uh, I want to make it clear to everyone that uh, it is not sole co-host um, in the wider sense just for today. We've got plenty of other co-hosts that will be appearing in future. There, there's there's something going around. I don't know what, but but people are getting sick and and I think it's called life. I think it's called the <laughs> increasing uh, chaos that is the planet Earth. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess uh, to speaking of chaos on planet Earth, uh, we may as well start maybe with just a, a quick um, update about about the terrible and ongoing war in ukraine um or against ukraine rather uh being done by vladimir putin russian president uh you know uh, every week that this goes on um it uh there's a new thing that happens that shows why it, this this conflict is so dangerous beyond obviously the 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 clear human rights issues obviously involved in, in you know killing civilians and everything uh, but even beyond that, you know, for the rest of the world beyond Ukraine, how dangerous this is. Uh, there was um, uh, some fighting uh, involved in taking uh, nuclear power plants in Ukraine that very nearly, um, it could have been much worse than it was. Thankfully, it was just a, a fire in a nearby building, but could have been very bad. Um, there, there's been talk of biolabs, um, and, and this is very important. This is distinct from whether they're bioweapons labs. There so far isn't, isn't evidence to suggest that, but there is biological research labs that are in Ukraine um, that have apparently a bunch of dangerous pathogens that God knows if, you know, if the fighting had happened around them, could have been very bad if those got released. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously there's the ever-present threat of nuclear war, the, uh, the constant sort of escalation, deepening involvement by the United States, increasing push in the United States and other parts of the world to install, a, a, to implement a no-fly zone which would mean war with Russia. So uh, that, that's my, my cat is not very happy about that. I don't know if that, that made it onto the recording. Uh, so uh, really bad stuff, um, but some good news. There have been these ceasefire negotiations, negotiations going on over the weeks the war has been raging. Um, it seems like there's, they're not necessarily close to finalizing one, but they're getting closer to a mutually acceptable kind of um, mutually acceptable terms for what that would be, and and it remains to be seen when that will actually be agreed on and how long it will last, how it will be implemented, all that. However, it is good news. Cautiously optimistic here. It is good news that that it seems like it's uh, that ceasefire agreement's winding its way to some sort of resolution. I think the most frustrating thing for me um, of the last four weeks from a I guess a media reporting point of view is that things haven't got clearer. You know, there, there's still all these issues with this information and, you know, it is, it is both sets of media. I mean, clearly Russian media is going to do dumb shit, but Western media has been as bad. Um, it's not just Russian disinfo we have to watch out for. Every week there are stories about Ukrainian heroes that are immediately disproven. Um, some have been from video games. Some have been from, Palestine um, rather than from Ukraine. And it doesn't help anyone when the media that we're, we're meant to trust in the West is also engaging in these kind of media strategies. 
I I tend to try and take at least a couple of days with any um, of the the worst news coming out of the area to see if it, it can be verified, because so often you're seeing in the reporting uh, the disclaimer that no one could verify this. Uh, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian sources are saying this. Russian sources are saying this. It can't be independently verified. Um, and sometimes a week later, you'll, you'll hear what the actual case was. Um, but un- until that point, until we're getting a clear idea of what's happening on the ground, there is benefit to both sides. Uh, and, and by both sides, I'm including, you know, US uh, and Western uh, escalation uh, narratives to just spreading lies. And it's, in- it's incredibly frustrating. And it's not, it doesn't help to actually come uh, through with a diplomatic solution for all of this. And that's my, my largest concern is that we have a, a media um, and multiple state apparatus, um, where, whether they're pro-Russia or, or pro-Ukraine or, or pro-US and, and NATO intervention, that, are, that seem not to be interested in actually coming to a, a peaceful conclusion here. And that is probably one of the more worrying uh, aspects of this conflict to me. Uh, absolutely. Uh, as you say, there's, diff- there's this information going on everywhere. It's a cliche to say that uh, the first casualty of war is truth, but but uh, that that is the case. The cliches are cliches because they're true. That's why they get repeated so much. Uh, well, no, they're not always true. <laughs> Let me caveat that. But but there is often a truth uh, in them. Um, that 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 is why they get mentioned so much. I mean, I. What has been really interesting to me is how obviously there's the fog of war, which means that there are certain things that we will not know that we cannot know until, you know, uh, maybe months from now. Um, But then there is also, of course, deliberate disinformation, because in in a war, every government is trying to win a propaganda war. They're trying to uh, present their preferred narrative of events to their own populations, to the enemy population, but also to the rest of the world, uh, which is what's happening here. And what's been really fascinating to watch is how now after six years where we've seen a, a real panic over misinformation, fake news, you know, governments um, using, you know, waging an information war, as people say, to, to kind of mislead people and, and cloud their understanding of the world. Now what we're seeing is um, you know, because uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, the, the Ukrainian president and the Ukrainian government more generally has been so good at kind of, uh, pushing its uh, preferred narrative onto the media, particularly the Western media. And because it's been so good at sort of persuading people with its message, uh, now there's, there's kind of this, <laughs> a number of articles that have been in the, in the US press kind of praising uh, the Ukrainian government for, for doing disinformation so well. And it's um, incredible. Yeah, right? They're calling it Stratcom. Uh, that's one of the... One of the yeah, yeah. and that means it's okay. That means it's okay. Yeah, there were, this is, that's, you know, if the, the, the governments that we don't like are doing disinformation, that's disinformation. If the governments we do like are doing it, well, that's STRATCOM, that's strategic communications, that's a communication strategy. And I mean, as just one example, for instance, um, uh, I, I, know, I know, Louis, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, as just one example uh, uh, that I'll give you is um, uh, Zelensky, uh, at one point when there was that fighting around a nuclear power plant, 
He said this, this is going to be a disaster for all of Europe if there's some sort of uh, meltdown or if there's some sort of terrible accident. This, will, this is a huge problem for all of Europe. This is why we need to establish a no-fly zone to prevent this catastrophe from happening and, 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 and you know, really hurting the entirety of the continent. Nuclear experts, you know, not just people in the industry, but nuclear regulatory experts in countries and the UN and other, other um, bodies, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's really unhappy about this. They came forward and they said, well, actually, no, no, Zelensky's not, uh, that's not true. He's, he's not being accurate there. It would be a disaster within Ukraine. And that would, of course, have uh, knock-on effects for the rest of the world, but it wouldn't be like the fallout would spread all across Europe. And that was, you know, Zelensky was kind of inflating this threat so that he could get a Western no-fly zone imposed, which again, you know, as we've explained before, would be a absolute catastrophe for the world. Um, so, you know, that's a, a good example of, of the way that it's important to have as much skepticism towards every government involved in this conflict as you would towards the Russian government. The Russian government is not the only one that is doing disinformation and, and yeah. all this other stuff. And that's not to say that, you know, we... We're like, okay, the Ukrainians are bad, the bad guys or, or anything like that. It's just we need to know what information there is and we need to be clear about what is the truth and what isn't. And if we're trying to make decisions or analyses based on things that are just completely incorrect, then we're going to come to bad conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and you're right. It's not that the Ukrainians are bad guys. Uh, Zelensky is doing what is it, he sees as in his national interest. He's trying to get more Western military support uh, for, for the war. Um, you can't blame him for that, given the fact that his country is being uh, invaded. Um, you know, uh, but his interest is also very different from, say, the rest of the world's interests, which I think do not lie in having a no-fly zone imposed. But speaking of uh, leaders trying to do their best, um, let's let's turn away from the Ukraine war for a second and let's go to some some of the big events that have happened in New Zealand uh, over the past week. Uh, and I think in this particular case, I'm really being uh, referring to the the shock resignation of Simon Bridges. Uh, you know, I don't know what number it is now, but we're just the latest kind of shock resignation uh, by kind of a, a long-serving national MP. And of course, in this case, it's it's particularly shocking because both. Uh, of Bridges' age, he was relatively young. He was what forty-five, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and also because even though he had uh, taken a bit of a battering within the party, um, it did feel like maybe he was kind of gearing up for uh, another tilt at the leadership. Um, and now he he's gone. Um, I don't know what what was your thought uh, hmm. when you when you heard about this, Carl? I think he's probably you know uh, Christopher Luxon. Um, has had some increasingly good polling numbers. Um, and Bridges sees that he's probably not going to be a prime minister with National. Uh, and, you know, pretty ambitious guy. We know that uh, from his previous leadership challenges um, and his previous leadership of the National Party. Um, the way he's constantly been in the news, he's written a book in the last couple of years. He has a lot that he wants to do. And... I think he probably just sees that being outside of politics at this point, um, at, at least for now. Um, like you said, he's, he's still young. He, he could be back in some way, shape or form um, if he decides that he misses uh, the political environment in Wellington. Mm. 
Or, uh, you know, if he doesn't end up getting a plum lobbyist uh, job and uh, making a ton of money while he's... I think he's not going to have any trouble doing that. I don't think he's going to have any (laughs) trouble um, getting some kind of plush job. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, What has been interesting to me, and again, (laughs) very much in line with what we were talking about with Ukraine and this kind of shift in the attitude towards this information, is the sudden kind of... Um, sanctification of, of Bridges, who, you know, I, I'm not saying he's like a bad guy. I'm sure he's perfectly nice. I, no, I think he's a bad level. guy. I think he's like a, not a nice guy. I don't think he's a, well, a good person. Let's get into that because he he's resigned. He hasn't died. The, 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 the kind of media coverage... He hasn't done, died. I just want to be very clear about that. He hasn't. Yeah, died. yeah, he's still alive. Let's let's be. I don't want any misinformation or fake news uh, coming out of this this podcast. He, he's very much alive. But but what's strange to me is that the kind of uh, laudatory or, or hagiographic uh, uh, treatment of his resignation is the kind of thing that people usually the kind of whitewashing that usually gets reserved for when when politicians die, you know. And then there's a, there's this kind of rule which I think is not really. A good one. I think it's a little misguided, but this rule that if a public figure dies, then no one should ever say anything bad about him. No one should ever, you know, basically have a, a, an accurate reckoning of what their record was uh, when they were in power. And you should try to say nice things. I mean, I again, I disagree with that, but it's a defensible position. I can understand it. But here he's resigned. And, you know, I'm even seeing some, you might say, left wing voices, uh, you know, let's say saying things like, you know, he would have, you know, he could have been a prime minister. He could have been a great prime minister. Yeah. Uh, or, or like saying, you know, he was such an experienced voice. He was such a, you know, he's a good man, all this stuff. I mean, first of all, the, the point about the, the, he could have been prime minister. I mean, okay, but he was the leader for a couple of years and he was not polling very good at all. He was actually disastrous. That's why he got rolled. Uh, things just did not get any better um, year after year that, that he was leader. Um, and I just feel like, you know, whether he was this great kind of statesman that National is missing, I mean, I, I'm sure you you have some examples you want to bring up. But I mean, I mean, just thinking back to uh, he made a joke uh, uh, when when uh, the prime minister's daughter was due to be born about how, you know, even though her parents were pinkos, uh, he would, you know, try and convert the daughter and, you know, that, that by giving birth in a public hospital, they were uh, costing taxpayer money. I mean, you know, uh, just like, exactly. just like bucket scraping shit. Eh? Yeah. Roundly criticized for that. one. I mean, can you give me, uh, what do you remember about Bridges? Uh, yeah. Tenure? So I, I, I just want to hark back to what you said there as well, which, is this um, narrative, and I think it's somewhat self-serving from um, the Labour PR types that are doing this, uh, which is where some of it is originating, about, you know, Parliament has lost one of their greater political minds or, like, uh, political experiences or, or whatever. There, some, some of that is around, like, oh, look, National's got no one now, you know? Like, they're, they're wanting to, to paint it in that way. I just, I, I don't think really parliament has any great political minds at the moment, honestly. I, I'm not sure if there's anyone that I would uh, paint in that way. We've got a lot of people and we've got some, so we've got some really fantastic people, uh, but I wouldn't, 
No, I can't think of anyone at the moment that will go down in history and parliament for their political mind. Um, and Simon Bridges certainly didn't fall into that that space either. And and as you said, um, you know, some of this has come from the left as well. We'd seen when he was originally rolled, there was this by Judith Collins, there was this like comeback Simon Bridges like um, campaign uh, kind of uh, from the left, uh, which uh, was calling him a yak king uh, and things like that. Which it, it was it was amusing, um, and it was to kind of get on Collins's nerves and like to try and foment um, another challenge and and keep national um, infighting. But Bridges kind of ran with that. Um, and he was able to use it to launder his image somewhat. And I think some of that has stuck uh, in, in this recent one as well. As you said, he's young. He's going to be in positions of influence um, going forward. A lot of people in the media are going to want to continue to tap into that. You know, he's going to have, uh, being a previous political leader, he's going to have a lot of um, network connections uh, in the media. In the same way that uh, Paula Bennett did when she left, both parties are going to want to capitalize on that. But I think he's a piece of shit. Um, I, I really do. I think he's um, uh, a really nasty piece of work. Um, there was a piece out by Sam Brooks in the spinoff uh, this week, uh, which underlines some of the political actions he took, which fit that, that persona. Um, and that's specifically around his consistent votes against... Um, you know, any policy that was in any way favorable uh, to queer people um, and and their human rights. You know, he this is a dude who even as leader of the party was was pushing that kind of policy um, platform. And I don't think that should have ever been something that was being seen as okay in, in New Zealand. Um, you know, we're well past that now. But that is who he is. And I don't want to see excuses of, oh, that's just like his, like part of his religion or whatever. Like, it's not good enough. Um, and even he's making it as a conscience, but okay, cool, his conscience fucking sucks. Like, he, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, like people have a right to exist um, and, to, and to live good lives. And you, and Simon Bridges consistently tried to block that. That, that is what a lot of his legacy is. He, he failed as national leader and he tried to block human rights affirming legislation for his entire mm. his entire time in politics. Well, fucking done. See you later, Kyle. As, as usual, uh, as usual, not not holding back at all. <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah, uh, what Kyle's talking about there partly is uh, Bridges is one of eight MPs to vote against banning conversion therapy, a- aka the in, if you if you come out as gay or, or queer that uh, instead of accepting who you are and being accepted by your community, no, no, what you do is instead as you go to some quack, uh, you know, psychologist, quote unquote, you know, really just a, some, some religious uh, weirdo who tries to convert you into being straight. Um, you know, th- I mean, obviously something that, that should not be happening, very profoundly damaging to, to people. Uh, this guy, Br- Bridges, was one of only eight people to, to vote against this. I mean, I mean, pretty beyond the pale. And I, I want to remind people about some of the other things that, that uh, uh, colored his tenure as, as national leader. I mean, for one, I, I, I can't believe this has not been mentioned. 
just what a few days, uh, a week before the Christchurch uh, uh, attack, the the, the, the atrocity, um, Bridges uh, went out and attacked this UN migration pact and completely overwrought dishonest terms as if it was sort of this globalist conspiracy to take over New Zealand's immigration policy and kind of let, let the floodgates open to to immigrants from all the you know uh, all these countries these strange foreign countries coming in completely untrue even Winston Peters of all people said that he was winking at the far right and that he should he should resign I mean if Winston Peters is doing that you have really gone uh, off the deep end um, and then and then when the the attacker when the when the terrorist uh, massacred all those people he had an anti-migration pact message, I believe, on one of his guns. You know, it shows you just how the kind of dangerous stuff that Bridges was yeah. playing there. I mean, other things we might think of, his his terrible, hapless response to the pandemic. I mean, if Bridges had been prime minister, as people sort of now are fondly wishing for him to, to, to have made it to be, if he had been prime minister during the uh, pandemic, uh, there would have been a lot more. Yeah, it would have been like a UK. Uh, it would have been terrible. Yes, because he he came out and he was he he very early on criticized the government for basically, uh, you know, doing too much for 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 doing the lockdown essentially. Um, in terms of people have kind of now talked about his his time as finance minister, um, uh, uh, and and that's sort of the the legacy he left. He was a very competent. Uh, sorry, not finance minister. I'm sorry, but shadow finance minister. Uh, and and that's sort of the legacy that he left. That he kind of was able to, to be a good tag team with with Christopher Luxon. Um, you know, I mean, and, and he, he highlighted the cost of living crisis. That's sort of what people are saying. What does that mean? Okay, sure, he may have highlighted it, but what were his solutions? His solutions were just the same old plutocratic neoliberal yeah. policy: cut cut spending. Um, workers are being paid too much. That's what's causing inflation to go up. And this is why I I don't understand why people call him a great political mind. Like, give me some evidence, anything. Well, and speaking of that, speaking of that, what else do we do when the government came out with its economic aid package in the early days of the coronavirus? Bridges' reaction to this was to say that the the, the government was putting too much money into uh, beneficiaries' pockets and not enough into workers and businesses. I mean, this is just really gross stuff. So I don't know. I don't know anything about Bridges. I don't know what he's like as a person. Whatever. I don't. I have no idea. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice man if you meet him on the street. Nah. But I mean, these these things. These are serious things. These words and and the things that he proposed actually doing had serious consequences or would have had serious consequences. I don't think we should just suddenly because he's resigned. That we should suddenly just sweep all this under the rug as if none of it matters. I mean, I think it's important to have a clear idea of someone's record uh, if they're a politician, if they're a public figure. I think someone's record is a direct reflection of who they are as a person, and I I suspect that at very best Simon Bridges is nice to people he can get something out of, and that may include people in the media. Um, you know, he might be really charming. Um, he might, yeah be able to have a good chat with you and have a cup of coffee or a beer or, or whatever the fuck um, you want to get into. Uh, but all of the actions that you've just mentioned there, Bronco, uh, I, don't, I don't think you do those unless you're a profoundly nasty person, um, especially like the migration pack stuff. That is just, you know, 
fortunately, I don't think you could get away with that as like a, a top 10 politician these days um, in New Zealand. I, I don't think you could, you could do it without just getting rinsed. Um, but apparently, you know, Bridges, it's in Bridges past. Uh, and now we get to kind of do this hageography hey, for Look, him. That was, that was three years ago. Let's just forget about it. Why are we bringing, why are we bringing stuff up from three years but it's, ago? This stuff matters. And it has like a, I think it's something we often, is often kind of swept under the carpet out politicians. Like, yeah, people can be nice. People can, can be great. They can be fantastic human beings or, or whatever. Like your experience of them can be that way. When politicians enact policies, um, or when they try and stop policies or when they are, you know, winking at the far right or whatever reactionary group, those things, because of the nature of their position in society, have a direct impact on other people. Whether it's Simon Bridges going out and like doing a conversion therapy or not is irrelevant. He is empowering other people to do that and to say it's okay. He is empowering other people to like get deep into Islamophobic uh, conspiracy theories. You know, he's, you have a responsibility as a politician to not be an asshole uh, and to not do these things because of your outsized influence on society. And so if you do do those things, if you are, and, you know, this goes for all of labor as well. Okay, cool, kindness, whatever. Ardern has done a great job with COVID, whatever. Um, they haven't, like, done any of the welfare advisory group changes. That kills people. Sorry, it just it just does. If the effects of your policy are that people die, that says something about you as a person. Well, uh, tell me what you think uh, this means for for the the seat of Tauranga, uh, because obviously Britain yeah. has held it. It's going to be a by election. What what are the dynamics here, and, and what's what do you think is? Uh, I think the the one actually interesting thing about Bridges. Um, resigning is that he didn't decide to resign at the next election um so he's given the go-ahead for a by-election um i think it's probably you know they've probably talked about this uh within national this has probably been like okayed by luxon he wants a a run um at a an election where he's pretty certain he's going to win uh to continue to feed this narrative that national are ahead and we like anyone who does any politics knows that this is pretty safe for National, like if not overwhelmingly safe. And it shouldn't in any way fuel the idea that Luxon is a prime minister ascendant. Um, we had some really good analysis by Rusty. Um, you can catch it on the website at 102.nz around the Tauranga by-election. Uh, he's essentially said that this is just hands down going to National unless something incredible happens. Um, the, the days of it being a New Zealand first stronghold or even like New Zealand first leaning are well past. Um, National could literally run anyone there uh, and they should win it based on um, Rusty's analysis of the electorate. So, yeah, I, I'd like to see Labour put up like a really conservative candidate and push it harder than um, maybe National expects it to. But I suspect Labour is just going to let it go as well. Um, the, the one confounding element is probably going to be New Zealand first. Um, but Winston Peters just doesn't have the base there that he used to. You know, he, he was ousted by National and it's only gone further blue uh, since that point. Um, 
you'd have to do something pretty special uh, to make that happen. And yeah, I think there'll, there'll be noise. There'll be a lot of spectacle around it, but we shouldn't be surprised by the result. Well, that, that's a very interesting uh, piece of analysis, and I guess we'll see uh, if that if that uh, ends up working out, or if there ends up being some sort of surprise that maybe that yeah, that like I, I think you know there's still polling to be done. Um, there's there's still time, and anything can happen in politics, as they say. Uh, but I would be I'd be very surprised if there's anything. But the other major news this week uh, beyond. Princess residing is Labour's response to the the cost of living crisis, uh, which which is to do with partly the the uh, war on Ukraine um, and the response to that, the the, the unprecedented sanctions um, against Russia in response to it, um, but also is a obviously a long running uh, issue in in New Zealand um, where not just rents but but all manner of kind of daily costs, including. Uh, groceries have been um, brutally expensive for many, many years. Um, and, and realizing that this was reaching a point where they couldn't really ignore any more labor, uh, the government um, announced two things. One is that the, uh, the, the, the tax on petrol is, is going down by 25 cents um, for three months, I believe. Um, and also for those three months, public transport will be uh, half price. Um, and there's already calls, very sensible ones, um, uh, I think, to make public transport free um, because the cost is something like $325 million a year, um, which isn't a ton of money um, if you're looking at some of the benefits that will accrue from this. Um, uh, I think the Greens are pushing that quite a bit. Obviously, Professor Collins, running for Auckland Mayor, he's pushing it for, for Auckland, for, for uh, free transport. Um, but I want to get your thoughts. What what uh, what do you think about this? About Labour's? Um, I think it's uh, I think it's very telling that it was the day after we released our podcast saying they needed to do something that they did do something. <laughs> I just want to put that out there for our listeners. <laughs> I the, think the it's, people in the cultures of power are listening to one of two hundred. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it was you know they'd been kind of floating the idea that they might do something about the fuel tax uh, for the last week. Uh, I think it's not good enough. Um, I think there will be there will be run-on effects beyond the individual, right, in terms of supply chain stuff um, that maybe brings other other costs down. Um, but you know, the fact that they're only saying they're saying it's only for three months really shows that it's they know that the impact won't be too much, um, and that they're going to revert it anyway. Is just cool. What does it change for like most individual New Zealanders? Not not enough. Um, it's certainly, you know, in, in light of the news um, about the supermarket duopolies from the Commerce Commission investigation, uh, there could have been stuff done around um, food prices. You know, there could have been stuff done about rental. Petrol is not what is costing us uh, most uh, trying to live in New Zealand. It's just spiraling cost of groceries uh, and obscene rental costs you know i think oh, i don't know what the current numbers are but at some point it was something like 60 percent of renters were paying more than 50 percent of their wage towards housing which is just incredible like that's and without some 
beginnings of systemic change rather than just like, oh, we'll put a bandaid on this for three months. This is going to be a continual problem. You know, it's, we talk about cost of living crisis as though um, this has just appeared. Uh, what that allows labor to do is say, oh, you know, it's, it's because of the pandemic um, and it's because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a very uh, specific uh, time-locked period during which uh, these, these issues are, are worse for New Zealanders. But it's, it's not. This, this crisis has been going for a long time and it's been building for a long time. It's just that these other crises in the world have made it much worse <laughs> at the moment. And without begin the beginnings of systemic change, that's going to continue for, I'm, I'd say, the majority of New Zealanders in, in some shape or form. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not uh, inherently opposed to, to the, the tax cut. I mean, I think, well, number one, petrol tax is a, a regressive tax, just like GST. Um, and they have been, you know, for the last few years under Labour... <laughs> hey, he know, Louis knows when he knows, something is he, bad. He, he's, he's the referee here. Uh, for the last few years under Labour, uh, instead of as they've kind of gone on this austerity mindset, this, this very uh, fiscally conservative approach um, that, you know, we don't have the money to, to spend on all this stuff that would be good and that would make people's lives better. So what we're going to do is we're just going to, we're going to keep spending tight uh, and we're not going to raise taxes on the rich to fund it, but we will occasionally just raise petrol taxes and other sort of regressive um, uh, callbacks basically. Um, so, you know, I, I think, Totally fine uh, to 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 cut that as a short term form of relief. However, it's very telling to me that this is uh, this is kind of one of the two prongs, which is just a tax cut. Which is, of course, you know, if you if you are someone who abides fundamentally by neoliberal policy, where you can't really imagine getting out of that straitjacket, that is, of course, what you would do is is go to the tax cut to be the first thing. You don't want to do anything active. And that's what national has done as well, right? So, like, exactly this right. tax cut is a labor response to national floating tax cuts. Right. Um, and, you know, this is something that I, um, I floated uh, on Sunday when we released uh, the podcast last week. I said, one of the risks here is that labor just try and get into a cuts battle uh, yeah. with, with national. And this does not bode well for that. No, no. Well, again... It would be fine if it was one of many things. Because again, I do think that the 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 way that they have said, "Oh, we can't pay for anything," and by the way, we're just going to continue grinding down, uh, you know, average working people's uh, pay paychecks. That 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 has been pretty unacceptable. But the thing is, this is their one of their main things. As you say, there's no discussion of uh, you know putting in a public. Uh, uh, entity into the the the, the supermarket uh, duopoly to to basically insert some competition in there. That was one of the ideas that was I know it was sort of not as enthusiastically suggested by the Commerce Commission, but it was suggested. Um, uh, you know that would be something that would be a really interesting and I think quite a bold move to take, and and I think would actually help um, to bring down um, uh, 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 some of these prices because you you there you're not having you know, supermarket CEOs jacking up the prices of, of fruit and vegetables and that kind of thing to, to pad their own pockets. It would be, it would be a government uh, uh, agency that, that, 
uh, or state owned, you know, enterprise that wouldn't be there just to, to crank up money for the people at the top. Um, but yeah, again, that's not being mentioned. And of course the housing crisis at the end of the day, this is the, the fundamental thing that is really, uh, uh, the biggest threat to, to, to New Zealand's economic future. And, uh, and it's just being still, the, the can is being kicked down the road. No one's really bothering to do anything. And the reason why is because no one, or very, very few people in parliament want to kind of reckon with the political, the potential political cost of <laughs> making a lot of people's uh, houses worth a lot less. But or, or their own houses worth a lot less, right? Well, so- yeah, exactly. They're five, they're five to seven houses that they might own. Um, but until that happens, uh, and unless that happens, um, people are going to keep paying more in rent, yep. keep, keep, uh, keep paying more for, for, for their mortgages and everything. And I mean, as you say, that is the biggest chunk of people's, uh, you know, uh, bank accounts that is, is being eaten up here. So this is something um, that my mate Dan Zollinger has referred to on Twitter as a bear trap problem. Um, so an issue where you need to apply equal force from two sides to, you know, open the trap. Because if you just cut taxes, you know, that puts a little bit of money in people's pockets. If it's a regressive tax, maybe like the petrol tax or or GST, maybe it's good uh, to do that. Um, But that goes straight out the window if you're not also bringing prices down. You know, that goes straight into the landlord's pocket. Landlord, like we've seen this happen previously with increased uh, student allowances landlords just put the fucking rent up, you know, uh, supermarkets would just put their prices up. They, they are profit. They have a profit motive. They, they're going to try to take that cost into themselves. Um, and so unless you are, unless you have policies on both sides, this doesn't actually help your, your average New Zealander um, because there are people who want that money and they don't want it because they're not going to take it because um, they, they need to. We know that super, supermarket duopoly is, has 400 million plus uh, excess profits, you know, like it's, they're, they're taking it because they can. Uh, so if there isn't something stopping them from doing that at the same time as making these tax cuts, nothing changes. Well, how about this? You know, obviously, this is a uh, despite the fact that the, the cost of living crisis has been going on for many years. This is a very unique, special set of circumstances. Uh, so, why not do what, say, uh, Te Pāti Māori has said, which is let's cut uh, GST on, on all food, right? So yeah, I just, think it's really important say, for all food. Yeah, people have said the healthy food thing, which is in theory fine. Um, but it does smack a little bit of social engineering, but you're kind of kind of leading people, kind of nudging them into into eating the kind of foods that, that you want. But but you're right. I mean, look, people are still going to buy unhealthy food anyway. So why not to make it a, a little easier for them? Because everyone everyone likes to have a little pleasure. You want to have you know whether it's like a, a, a candy bar. Or also, whatever, some of that food is bar. just cheaper. It's just cheaper calories. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Why not say, look, this is a very special set of circumstances. Let's uh, temporarily cut GST for all food. We'll put a sunset on it. So in three months, uh, we can have the the uh, choice that we basically reauthorize it again, or we say, no, it's it's the cost of living crisis is done. We decide, and, and we're going to put it back. And then you can you know decide when you want to take it off. And in the meantime, you also say, 
And because we're in this very special set of circumstances, by the way, we are also going to say, um, take a more aggressive posture towards taxing the, the very richest. And this isn't, you know, the, the New Zealand tax code is if you earn over 180,000, you're in the highest tax code. I'm not talking about people who are even earning in the hundreds of thousands. I'm talking about people who are worth millions upon millions, tens of millions. Um, clearly, this is a very, very unique time that we find ourselves in. I think it's probably about time that some of those people who are sitting on massive mounds of wealth, yeah. maybe pay a little more instead of having, um, you know, the, the average New Zealander having a, a shell out you know, uh, insane fractions of their of their uh, their paychecks to to be able to just get by, feed their families. Yeah, I think I saw it like um, it was in the Herald or on stuff. Uh, Graham Hart and all organizations involved with him are just going around buying up Auckland's housing stock. You know, that that's the kind of money that this dude has. He's a billionaire in New Zealand, uh, and he's just he's just buying all the houses. You know. <laughs> Cool. Well, Take some is, of that. He shouldn't be able to do that. It shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the massive, if we're going to talk about going after landlords and stuff, the massive landlords that have just, you know, fleets of properties are, are the obvious target, I think. Uh, you know, uh, th- that's, that's a starting point. I mean, it does not make any sense that one person or one entity uh, ends up basically just controlling this massive, massive uh, uh, stock of, of housing that, that people need to leave. That, that's an insane amount of power that you have over over you know someone, um, and and it means that also uh, you can get away with a lot of shenanigans. Whether that's you know you're raising rents too much or you know um, <laughs> uh, acting like a slumlord, all sorts of things. There's many many things you can get, and those are those are I think the, the biggest most obvious targets you go for um but uh, you know again these are things that are just kind of uh not really being talked about which is not surprising but hey that's why you come to one of 200 to uh to hear some of these ideas uh you know uh, being talked about to, to hear some of the stuff that is not mentioned yeah in the mainstream press in mainstream political discourse and i'm i'm really hopeful that over the next few months we're going to see uh, quite a bit more of that uh with a progressive mayor running in auckland um mm. we've already seen him pushing uh free fares for public transport here. I suspect we're going to see quite a bit more uh, out of his campaign as well, just forcing uh, some of those narratives uh, into the public sphere in a way that they haven't. So keep an eye out for that as well. Um, and probably try and get on board with that campaign if you if you have some spare time or if it's something you want to get involved with, because we're about to see some of the stuff becoming more mainstream. And I think if that successful campaign, we're going to see Labour start to shift a bit more on that as well. Or at least, you know, that's what, that's some of the, the optimism that I have uh, for the next couple of years. That's correct, because everything seems unreal or fantastic until there is a voice that's actually out there saying these things. And then suddenly people go, well, hold on, maybe that's not so crazy yeah. because someone someone's saying it. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's also what we're trying to do here at One of 200. So uh, I, I hope everyone's uh, enjoyed the episode. Again, if you enjoyed it, if you liked what you heard, if you think other people would benefit from hearing some of the stuff, uh, we invite you to, to share, subscribe, everything you can, get the word out. Um, of course, 
if you want, if you have a couple bucks to spare, we always appreciate that. It helps us to, uh, to pay a living wage um, for editing these episodes. So we really appreciate that. But uh, until then, um, well, this will be another week for one or 200. And uh, thank you, Kyle, for, for joining me. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no